Whoops. You stumbled into that leadership position. You had a big vision, big ideas, but it hasn't gone quite as you planned. You're in the right place. Welcome to the Accidental Leader Podcast with your accidental leader, Bo McDonald. Welcome into episode number seven of the Accidental Leader Podcast. I'm your host and fellow accidental leader, Bo McDonald. Before we kick things off, a lot of folks have tuned in over the last few episodes. I've got amazing feedback, so many great tweets, emails, text messages. I just want to say thank you for, for all of that, for giving me 30 minutes of your day every other week. I'm honored, and I just want to say thank you. For those of you just tuning in for the very first time, maybe you found this on uh, our guest, Paul Gomer. Maybe you found this on, on his LinkedIn or, or somewhere where he shared it. You're wondering, what in the world is this podcast all about? Why does it exist? I would encourage you, go back to episodes one and two. Listen to my story as an accidental leader and, and listen to some of those stories in the following episodes from folks just like Paul, who we're going to introduce to you in, in just a few minutes. It's it's been a wild ride. And, and in this episode and, and even episode number eight coming up next in a couple of weeks, I want to tackle some, some heavy subjects in, in leadership. Today, we're going to talk about leadership and, and mental health and the stigma of can't, either believing I can't or being told you can't. I recall reading one of Ryan Holiday's books, and, and in it, he shared a story of Abraham Lincoln that I had never heard before. If you go back to elementary school and every everything you know about Abraham Lincoln, you know so many positive things about him and his, his leadership and what he did for this country as he was president. But there's so much more behind the story of Lincoln I didn't know, and it was it was fascinating. The, the story detailed Lincoln's struggle with clinical depression for most of his adult life, and actually as he was a child as well, to the point that today it would have been considered a, a character issue or a political liability in, in today's society. But that very character issue was what many experts believe to be exactly what he needed to save our nation in, in some of its darkest times. You, you think about the, the, the stigma of mental health and being told I can't or you can't. And, and way before the days of today, Abraham Lincoln was dealing with that. And, and, you should check out the Ryan Holiday book, Discipline is, is Destiny and Ego is the Enemy. And the story is mentioned in a couple of them, and it's just fascinating. So as Lincoln came to the stage of the 1860 State Republican Convention in Cater, Illinois, before he was president, the crowd roared in overwhelming approval. Hats were thrown into the air, canes were shaking. The hall was shaken to the point that the stage actually collapsed. And at 51 years old, Lincoln was at the peak his political career in a position most politicians today would be envious of, the support that he had. But many accounts of Lincoln's personality at that very convention where everyone was waving him on and celebrating Lincoln, he didn't seem triumphant. He didn't seem excited. He didn't even seem pleased. One observer said, I thought him one of the most diffident and worst plagued men I ever saw. The next day, William J. Bross, the lieutenant governor of Illinois, encountered Lincoln sitting alone at the end of the hall the day after that convention. Lincoln had his head in his hands and just said, I'm not very well. This was a normal response from Lincoln, unfortunately, as many of his friends referred to this as his time of melancholy, not fully understanding the severity of Lincoln's sadness and, and what all was behind it. You see, as a young man, Lincoln spoke more than once about suicide, and, and despite the demons that Lincoln wrestled with, and the many effects depression had on, on his life, many experts believe those, those demons and that depression are exactly what made him a successful leader. His, his depression spurred him to examine the core of his very soul. They 
helped him develop crucial skills and capacities and, and his creative responses to it and his humble determination. It, it's what led him to success. But instead of recounting a historical example of a leader struggling with mental health issues, I want to introduce you to today's guest on the Accidental Leader podcast who has overcome the labels and stigmas of, of mental health issues. He's an exceptional leader within his church, within the credit union industry, someone that I look up to that I've had the, the pleasure of working with in the past. He's also an author of a new book, not new, a couple months now, maybe a year of a walk with the light in the shadows. Three, two, one. For more resources and to listen to past Accidental Leader podcast episodes, visit theaccidentalleader.com, courtesy of our sponsors, your marketing company, and Uncommon. Paul Gomer, welcome to the Accidental Leader Podcast. Oh, Bo, thank you so much. I'm so um, honored and blessed to be part of this uh, podcast. Thank you. So, Paul, I appreciate you coming to, to spend some time with us and, and talking about this heavy subject. I feel like a lot of folks would, would steer away from this because it, it's heavy, it's, it's unpleasant. Folks who, who don't deal with this don't, ac- don't really understand it. And that's really why I wanted to have you on this podcast because I, I want to I remove that stigma. I want folks who who aren't dealing with this, who, who may lead folks with mental health issues or, or those with mental health issues who, who want to be leaders or are leaders, but, but they, they have that I can't in front of them, and, and we want to remove that. And I just want to start by saying, as I read your book, it, it made me reflect on the stories I've read of, of Lincoln and realize just how much we can let labels getting, just get in our way, telling us the lies that we can't because, but you've overcome those lies. You've overcome the labels many times. And I don't want to give away everything in the book, but could you just start by briefly sharing your story with our listeners? Oh, absolutely. I, um, I was born and raised in West Central Illinois, a very small town. Um, it's one of those towns that you hear uh, talking about, you know, everybody knew everybody. You couldn't get by with anything because your parents would find out. A uh, very small town like that, born and raised, uh, working in the farming industry. And, you know, from an early age, now that I reflect back, from an early age, I think I was struggling with mental illness back then. Uh, I got into grade school and high school, and I considered myself medium. I wasn't high. I wasn't low. I was just kind of medium. I wasn't the best student. I wasn't the best athlete. Uh, I, there was nothing artsy about me whatsoever. I was just medium, and I was... Uh, I, I never really was in with any of those crowds. I wasn't in with the jocks. I wasn't in with the smart kids. And I felt myself, I, I needed to be part of a community. I needed to be part of a tribe. And unfortunately, the tribe that I chose was the tribe that, that accepted me for who I was and for my, my faults. And that was the tribe of, of the group of kids that drank a lot and, and did a lot of drugs. And that's where I found myself at 15 years old. Um, I was in that group and that group welcomed me and they didn't judge me and they didn't ask me a lot of questions. We just, we just got drunk and, and did a lot of drugs. And I stayed that way all the way till I was about 20 years old when I, when I met my now wife and, um, she kind of pulled me out of that darkness. And, and, uh, I, I knew even early on in our marriage that still something wasn't right. I was having feelings of, you know, self-worth and, and, self-image and um, I had lost a bunch of weight uh, due to the drugs and alcohol um, but I was heavier when I was younger and I you know I, I got promiscuous and 
And uh, I just, I, you know, I just felt like I had the world by the tail. But then in the back of my mind, I just kept telling myself that I was not, I was not good enough for this world. And I was not good enough, especially for my wife. I've been married to her for 34 years. And, and uh, she's, she is one of the strongest people I've ever met in my life. And um, I just felt like I wasn't good enough for her either. And every day, I just kind of shake those feelings off and go about my day. And it, in about 2010, I started noticing different feelings. Those feelings exacerbated. Um, they became feelings of uh, just not self-worth, but not wanting to be in this world and not you know, thinking that people didn't want, want me here, that they could survive well without me. And, and um, about 2012, I, I, uh, early 2012, I, I said, this is it. I'm not going to do this anymore. And and uh, I went into my into my closet and I found a shotgun and uh, grabbed a box of shells and I, I was going to be done. My wife was gone. My kids were gone. And I felt so much despair and felt like they'd be better off without me. Now, the, the ironic part of the story is I was a hunter and, and I like to shoot trap and clay pigeon. And um, I always had a box of shells or 10. Uh, my wife used to get on me about the number of the number of uh, amounts of ammunition that I had in my closet. And when I went to grab that box of shells, Bo, that box of shells was empty and there was nothing else left on the shelf. And the gun itself was not loaded. And right then I knew I needed help. Um, in 2000, in the year 2000, I decided, my wife and I decided to go to church. Um, I had never been to church in my life, maybe a couple of Easter's and, and Christmases when I was a kid, but never regularly attended church. And we decided we were going to go to church. And after I found out the walls were not going to come down around me, the first time I stepped inside that church, I became comfortable with, with the people and the doctrine that was being taught. And, and I became a Christian late in 2000. And, and at that point, I thought everything's going to be roses and rainbows moving forward. Um, uh, and I know that's not biblically true, but in my mind, I felt like I was going to be protected to protect the moving forward. So when you fast forward to from then until 2012, um, where the, the thoughts and the demons kept getting stronger and stronger, and I felt farther and farther away from, from the God that I accepted into my life uh, to get to the point where I almost took my life. I, I feel like that was a God intervention that the, that my shells were empty. Um, and so I, I went to the doctor. I told my wife exactly what had happened. We had gone to the doctor, and the doctor referred me out to a specialist, and I was diagnosed at that time as uh, bipolar 2 disorder, which is, uh, there's bipolar 1, which is more of the manic side of it, where you, you talk real fast and, and you, you clean the house five times a day, and then bipolar 2 is more of the depressive side, and, and that's, not that I don't have my manic times, but I, I also have uh, pretty deep depression times as well. Wow. Paul, uh, I want to go back to that in just a moment, but I, I do want to ask, through all of that, you, you've managed to become a very successful leader and, and you know, through the, the self-worth, through the, the self-doubt and, and others, probably, you know, when they learn this about you, the, the stigma of you can't uh, or believing I can't, how do you continue to push past those those lies and labels to to continue to successfully lead your your team and, and lead your credit union? I've been truly blessed, Bo, because um, there are so many people that that live with this 
this mental disease that that have it so much worse than I do. They they don't have the opportunity to to work. Um, they are they are you know situationally in some type of a, a disability side, and I've been blessed to be able to continue to work. And I think a lot of that falls back on medication, prayer, support from my family. But there, and, and when I say this, it's probably going to be hard for your listeners to believe this, but it is 100% true. There's not a single day that I don't wake up um, wondering if I am good enough to go to work that day or wondering if I'm a good enough husband or wondering if I'm a good enough um, father or grandfather. Not a single day goes by. And I have to find a way to meditate and pray through those situations. Um, there are days, um, and I'll, I'll talk my, about my boss and the people that I work with here in just a second, but there are days where I have to call out and, and I, I just do not have the mental wherewithal to go and face the day. And as you know, uh, dealing with credit unions and, and uh, doing your strategic planning sessions, uh, those can be intense, you know, trying to run a credit union or, or be second in command at a credit union. That's some intense stuff. And there are just days where the deans are so loud that I'm just not good enough to help run the credit union. I'm just not good enough to lead my team that I have to take some time away um, and shut down all the noise and uh, take my medication and, and just pray that it's a, a cycle that only lasts for a day or so. And again, I've been blessed so far that I've been able to get through these cycles. I've been able to be functional both in my personal and professional life. Um, but I, I'll be the first one to tell you, Bo, I, the I can't is in my vocabulary every day. And it, it is a chore sometimes to get past the I can't. But one thing I've learned to do is I've taken a strategic plan from work, the ones that we've developed over the years, and I go back and look at those plans from two years ago, five years ago, and look at everything that we have accomplished. And I convinced myself that I was part of that team that helped accomplish that. So that negates my I can't because obviously it's right there in front of me. I can do it. Paul, that takes a, a strong person to, to set that I can't aside and, and and go back and, and do that exercise that you just shared to find those things that, that you can and, and you did. And it, you had to have had some strong leaders who have, who've instilled these skills into you over the last decade, two decades. We're not going to say how old you are. I never ask my guests <laughs> that, but I'll divert just for a moment. I want to talk about your leadership journey. In the first few episodes, I, I shared the stories of, of two leaders, one great and one not so great. Both of them named, named John. They both had major impacts on, on my leadership journey. Tell us about your Johns. Who was one of the greatest leaders you ever worked for? What did you learn from them? What elements of their leadership style do you emulate, emulate today? And, and how has that made you successful? Well, it's funny because when I listen to your podcast and you were talking about your two Johns, I have two Toms um, from my positive and negative uh, role models in my life, as far as my professional life goes, I have two Toms. The first Tom, um, and I'll tell a brief story. I had started to work at a credit union um, right after I got married. My wife and I hadn't been married very long at all. She was pregnant with her first child. 
And I started work as a credit at the credit union as a document runner. I would I would take documents to the attorneys, or I would fill in the mail room, or I, it, they called it office services. So basically, jack of all trades. If the bathroom being cleaned, I was I was in doing the cleaning of the bathroom. And one day I was in in the restroom, um, you know, doing what nature has us do. And I had a gentleman walk in next to me at the urinal next to me, and he he, he just basically flat out said. Who the F are you? And me being me, this is my type of personality. I look back and I said, who the F are you? And he just started laughing and he went and washed his hands and he went about his day. And I didn't think really any more about it too much until about four hours later, my boss called me into my office or to his office, shut the door, had this look on his face and said, you want to tell me what happened in the bathroom today? And right then I knew the, the first thing in my mind went to was how am I going to tell my brand new wife who's pregnant and we're trying to make ends meet that I just lost my job. I feel uh, like that is a question no one ever wants to be asked. What happened in the bathroom? That question alone is, is scary. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I just manned up and said, here's exactly what happened. Um, and I, I started to apologize and say, you know, I'm sorry. That's just my personality. The way that he came across, I, I got real defensive and I apologized. And he goes, hang on a second. He goes, do you know who that was? And I said, no, I don't. He says, his name is Tom Decker. And he's the vice president of lending. And again, felt that, uh, felt that wave come across me that I got to try to find another job. Um, and then he went on to say, my boss went on to say, he wants you working for him. Uh, needless to say, I was not expecting that response. So I, I was very confused and he said, I'm not going to go into any details, but he came to me and said, I want this guy working for me. Um, so within a month, I was working for Tom and the blessings that he gave me in my life, the, the opportunities, uh, he put me into a, a, you know, kind of a, a beginning lending role and he, he made me learn that he kept me humble. One of the one of the positions that he allowed me to to attempt, I felt like I picked it up really quick. So I went to his office and said, "I'm good. I got this. Uh, what you got next?" And he goes, "You just go set your your butt back down and get some more experience doing that. You haven't seen everything you need to see in that position." So he kept me humble, and for the next few years, um, as positions became available that he felt like I could tackle, he allowed me to be part of that that um, structure. The thing that was really kind of interesting was before I became a manager there, he was taking me to management meetings, which did not set well with some of the other managers. But he would um, he would call me into his office minimum one time a week and say, what did you learn today? What did you learn this week? And here's what I observe and here's how you need to get better. And at first, that was hard for me. I, I'm one of those people that I, you know, I want the accolades tell me that I did good, but I don't, if, if I didn't bad, just don't say anything. So it took me a long time for me to be able to take that. And I believe it was constructive criticism at that time. And he did it to make me better. Um, and from that point forward, I, I moved into different positions there. I was part of the very first indirect lending program in the state of Illinois as something that he allowed me to do. He came to me and said, you'd be perfect for this. 
I said, I don't even know what indirect lending is. And he goes, I can teach you that, but you'll be perfect for it. I was part of that program. And then when he retired from that credit union, he came to me that day and said, I'm leaving. I'm going to retire. They will not take my one month notice. They're going to walk me out today. Would you like to come with me? Um, I said, well, I, I, I can't right now. I can go and talk to my wife about it. Tell me what, what the next step is. And so he did. And sure enough, they walked him out that day. I went home and talked to my wife. And she said, if you trust that man that much and you talk so much about him, about what he's done in your life, then I trust you to make the right decision. And so the next day I gave my notice and went to work with him at another, another uh, institution, another organization. You know, think about the, the ghost of, of Christmas past. Could you imagine how your life would be different if, if you didn't have that, that first Tom, Tom Decker to, to lead you and, and coach you and, and, and be that, that figure that told you you can do it? Yeah. And he, you know, he was an intimidating figure. And there may be people listening to this podcast that remember him. Um, he worked for CUNA and CUNA Mutual for a long time, and he was part of the lending lab. So your old time credit union people may remember the CUNA lending lab. And that's the part that I went to work with him going across the country and training lending compliance, everything from individual credit unions to chapters to conferences and even the NCUA examiner school teaching um, lending compliance. And intimidating man. But, you know, just as soft as he could be on the inside and one of the best for me. And, and all those times where I felt like I wasn't worthy, he was reassuring me, even during the constructive criticism, he was reassuring me that I truly was worthy to be in the position that I was in. You know, for all of the accidental leaders listening, listen to, to that story of Tom Decker and, and how, he, how he approached young talent and, and how he coached them up that that is an awesome story. It, it lined so much with, with my first John, the, the great John that I worked for. It, it sounds so much like him and the opportunities he gave me. But let's talk about the other side of it. What about a, a leader that wasn't so great? Those that are, they're always learning opportunities where you say, oh, I'll, I'll never do that if I become a leader. Yeah, the other one was a Tom as well. And uh, after Tom Decker passed away and it was unexpected, um, I felt like I needed to do something different in my life. I didn't didn't want to be part of that organization anymore because there were just way too many things that reminded me of him and it would distract me. And, and so I decided it was time to maybe try to get into another credit unit again. And um, so I, I had an opportunity to recruit that I did some compliance training for an opportunity came up. Um, I didn't know the CEO well. Um, I knew him through the strategic planning sessions and um, through the compliance training. But he offered me a really good position. And so I took it. It, it got me off the road. Um, my wife was already complaining enough that I was gone too much. So uh, I took that opportunity, but it soon found out that um, his leadership style was 180 degrees from Tom Decker's leadership style. He led by intimidation. Um, he led by deception. He would tell you what you want to hear and then you would get excited about doing all these things putting together the plan for the next year and how you see the lending department you know and where we can grow there and where we can grow in operations and hiring the right people to represent the credit union and i would spend hours and hours and i'd sit down and go through all of this just like 
you know, Decker used to do for me. He would say, where do you see the lending department a year from now, three years from now, five years from now? Where do you see the growth opportunities? What kind of employees do we need to hire? So I was doing that exact same thing at the Southern Credit Union with a different time. And I would present these ideas and he would go, mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Okay, got it. And that was it. And I felt, I'm like, what just happened? Because, you know, my, my Tom, who was my great role model, would say, yeah, that probably will work, but this one, this one may not. Here's why. Instead of that, I got a, yep, 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 yep. Okay, thanks. And I, I was very confused. Um, and then I, as I stayed there longer, more management people got involved into meetings. You know, the, he would go to a training session or something and come back and he'd go, okay, I'm going to, we're going to do this together. This is going to be all of us together. We're going to brainstorm this. We're going to make this program work. So I need you to all go back, look at your area and tell me three things that you need to work on to make that area better. And three projects that you'd like to see implemented that would, would benefit our membership. So we all did that. There were, I think, six or seven months. And we all came back together in the room. And they all got completely torn apart. And so that he said, that's not what I was thinking at all. You know, he didn't give us any direction of, of his thoughts. But he did make it very clear at that point that that was, that was not his direction at all. And he almost seemed appalled that we would even consider that. Fast forward about four months. So so basically that entire planning session went out the window and, and we ended up doing what we wanted to do. Fast forward about 12 months and I'm sitting in a board meeting with him. And one of our managers at the time had come up with a wonderful incentive idea for our staff on retention of members. This credit union that I worked at was, was a university credit union and um, we would lose those students after a while. And he had come up with a wonderful marketing idea on how we could retain those those members. And four months later, he we're in this board meeting and Tom says, I came up with this idea last week and here's what it is. And it was that manager's idea word for word. He just basically took the document that was provided to him and put it on a PowerPoint slide and presented it to the board as his own. And right then I knew, you know, this was in the middle of trying to figure out what was going on with me mentally, um, why I was having feelings that I was having, feelings of self-harm. Um, so I'm trying to figure all that out. And I'm working for a narcissistic leader. And I knew at that point that I was going to have to leave. Um, I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I went home and told my wife that I just couldn't work for this person anymore. And she said, well, I trust you. I trust you when you left the credit union to follow Tom. I trust you after Tom passed away that you wanted to get back into a credit union. And I trust you now. And we'll make it work. Um, there are so, We don't have enough time, though, for me to go through and bullet point the things that I learned not to do as a leader that experience you know i'm pretty sure as as folks would go back and listen to to the first episode where i shared my story of the the not so great john the story of of your second tom if we didn't have names in those i'm pretty sure people listening would say i worked for that person <laughs> maybe twice or 
or three times. So look, let's focus on you as a leader. What is one mistake you've made as a leader? What did you learn from it and, and what changed in you? You know, I would say before I went to work for the second time, I had a really good game plan of, of how to be a manager. He, he did so well with me and, and meeting with me consistently and reinforcing and disciplining if necessary and giving constructive criticism that I knew right then I wanted to be a leader like that, but I became so tainted by the second Tom that I forgot a lot of what I learned at the first time. So when I had the opportunity to, to work at the credit union that I'm at now, my first mistake was not setting down and getting to know my people. You know, I, I, I put them in an umbrella, like everybody's personality is exactly the same and everybody wants to make money and everybody wants this and everybody wants that. And I never took the time early on here to sit down and ask them what they needed from me. There's a, there's a, there's a television show out there. And I remember the intro of the show where the person on that show said, what can I do for you? And I forgot that Tom, Tom Decker taught me that. And then I became so tainted that I forgot that until one of the managers came to me and said, you've talked about incentive. You've talked about raises. Um, you've talked about this and that, but you know what? Money really isn't what drives me. What drives me is knowing that I'm doing a good job. What drives me is that I'm, I'm learning more so I can progress and have your job in the future. You're not asking me any of those things. So thank God that. I had a manager strong enough to come to me in a closed door session and say, here's what you're doing, but here's what I need. And man, did that open my eyes um, to taking me back to dealing with Tom Decker and forgetting all that negative energy that I came with and basically starting over from scratch and taking the principles that were taught to me early on and then being able to implement those principles to this day. You know, for those listening that, that are early on in their leadership journey, I, I, I hope you hear that story. And I hope you take it to heart because, Paul, the story you just shared is the same exact story of my two Johns. The, the very first leader I worked for, one of the, the best leaders that ever worked for. This podcast exists because I was nothing like him. I was so much like the, the second John that, that that's how I led. I didn't ask people, you know, what do you need? I, I did the same exact thing as you are. I, I didn't do that. And, and that was the problem. I, I, re, I thought that everyone wanted to be led like me. You, you have to whip them into shape. You, you got you to gotta be tough on them. And, and yeah, you have to be tough on, on people, tough love. But there's a fine line between tough love and, and, and just abuse as a leader. And, and I, I hope those listening, if you're early on in, in your leadership journey, Reflect back on, on the best leader you ever worked for and, and start learning from them. Start implementing things that they have done, not, not that leader that, that has poured all of the, the negative and, and toxicity of, of leadership into you. Paul, I want to ask a, a few final questions about your journey and, and really ask your advice as a leader. After reading uh, Adam Alter's book, Drunk Tank Pink, which I picked up and I thought it was a book about branding 
They talk about how the certain color of pink would calm drunks down. So they started painting jail cells with with this color pink. So me as a marketing person, I, I thought this was going to be a great branding book. And it was actually a gut punch because it, it talks about that even most people have subconscious biases. You can say you don't, but the data in this book and the stories in this book really proved that that deep down in your heart, it, it really impacts everyone. So I want to know, how does your leader support you? And what I'm really asking is, as a leader, if I have a great employee that that struggles with mental health issues, how can I best support that employee? How can I go beyond the stigmas? How can I go beyond the labels? And how can I truly support that that person to bring out the best in them? Yeah, I think that there's a couple things that go into that, Bo. I think the first thing is you have to be willing to listen. And I can even, even though I know this and I live it every single day um, and my family has studied about this, there are times where I listen to respond. I don't listen to feel what they're feeling. I'm listening so I can come up and I can, I can say what I need to say next instead of, of really taking in what they are saying. And no matter how outlandish, especially with mental illness and people, you know, with the people that don't understand the depths of despair and the feelings of self-harm, um, especially with people like that, it may sound just absolutely unconscionable that people are feeling that way, or it, it may just sound silly. You know, you're a great person. I have no idea why you're feeling like that. The number one thing that you should not do is dismiss. Do not dismiss what they're feeling. It may seem strange to you, or it may seem out of character for them. I've had so many people come up to me after I, I do a lot of speaking engagements and, and some podcasts, and I've had people come up to me afterwards and said, I would have never known. I would have never known that you struggle with mental illness. And when I tell the story, like I told earlier about coming very close to taking my own life, I, I think it shocks people. I say that you, if, if you have someone that approaches you as a leader and they come in and they close the door and they say, you know what? Last night I was driving home and I felt like I was going to, I just wanted to drive into a tree. I, I don't know who to, who to talk to or what to say. That feeling that they're feeling right there, that vulnerability they're showing you is real. Do not dismiss it. If nothing else, if you don't know how to address it, say, tell me more. Tell me, tell me more about why you felt that way. And be interested. Don't listen to respond. Listen to be empathetic to, to what they're going through. And I am truly blessed. My boss, Jody, um, if I go into her office and I say, I'm really struggling today, she gives me all kinds of different options. Do you want to talk about it? Do you need to take some time away? Take an extended lunch. Um, go into your office and just shut the door and, and disconnect. Or do you want to go home? She gives me these different options. She understands. And for people, for leaders and new leaders especially, this is, this is something big in today's society is young people with the mental health issues. Take the time to learn more about it. You know, we take all these compliance trainings on BSA and FACT and all these different things. Why don't you take a little bit of time and learn about mental illness 
uh, and mental health issues in, in society today. And maybe that will equip you to be able to, when that person does come in and shut the door and say, I, I really felt like harming myself last night, you'll be armed a little bit better to be able to have that discussion with them. But the one thing that I see and and on the online support groups that I'm part of is that it's do not be dismissive because what they're feeling at that time is real, no matter how unreasonable it sounds. Paul, I, I so related to that story because I recall sitting in a conference room with you for two days talking strategy and, and all sorts of fun stuff. I remember sitting at lunch with you and it was several months after that when, it, when I saw on Facebook, you posted, you wrote this book. And and I unfortunately had that same thought. I'm like, oh, I didn't know that about Paul. He seems like such a a happy fella. And I, I had to check myself at that moment and realize I I said that. I said that. And you're not alone. You're not alone. Um, and the other thing that I, I've really found to be true is because people don't take the time to learn. And I'm not just talking professionally. I'm talking personally. My family... Basically, I think each one of them now have a PhD in psychology because they have researched so much how to support me, especially my wife, that it doesn't scare them anymore. When I have an episode, it doesn't scare them. They become empathetic and they, and they know what I need because they've done the research. Um, so I think, you know, that, that feeling of, I don't want to deal with this. And I'll tell a real quick story. When I, when I wrote this book, I read a study that set out of 10,000 pastors that were, that were questioned. Of 10,000 pastors that were questioned, they, the question was asked was, do you teach about mental health in the Christian community? 68% of them said they would never do it. They not only have they not done it, they would never do it. The follow-up question was why? And the answer to that was because they were afraid they would open Pandora's box and not have the resources to deal with it. And I think as a society, that's how we are. When I approach somebody or, or somebody reads the book and they, and they say, you know, I had no idea. Um, I think it's the fear that sets in where they'll go, well, I hope you get better. <laughs> um, they don't know what else to say. They become uncomfortable. They, they're not used to that type, you know, and I'm, I wasn't either, but I'll tell you, I wasn't used to being vulnerable like this, but there, somebody has to be a voice for this in the professional community and, in, in, you know, in the Christian community. There are people that work for you folks that are struggling in some way, shape or form. And it may not, you may not see it, but it is there. And empathy goes a long way. The days of hard-handed leadership are gone. You have to be able to take some time and learn how to be empathetic and understand the needs of each one of your employees. We have, we don't, we're not a very big credit. We have 25 employees. I take the time and have them come into my office and talk to them personal, one-on-one, -on -one, not, uh, not COO to teller. It is Paul to Jane. And it, it, it is a conversation. So I get to know them better and they get to know me better. Um, I think that is, if I, if there was one huge takeaway from this, um, please take the time to learn more about mental health and mental illness. You're only going to make your employees better if you can understand what they're going through. 
you may not be able to re relate to it, but at least it would give you an understanding. And that's what Jody, our, my CEO, has done. She's taken the time to understand. You know, and as leaders, if you have not encountered this with those that you lead yet, you, you will. Uh, and it's one of the scariest things you'll experience. I, I had this as a leader. It was about three years ago. Someone came in and, uh, and we noticed some things about them that, that weren't quite right. And, and I was afraid because I'm their leader. And I, I felt so helpless because I didn't know what to do. And thankfully, we have a, a great PEO and we were able to reach out and we had great resources and, and we were able to, to have a conversation with this person and, and, and understand more about it. And, and for someone who doesn't struggle with that, it, it, it's so hard, I think, to, to understand that feeling and, and, and what they're going through. And I, and I think your advice is, is so important. If you haven't had to deal with this yet, you will. And and you need the resources to to do that. I want to I want to flip the the script for just a moment. You you've been very vulnerable and, and open with your story, and, and I truly believe that there were no shells in that case because you, you're here to share this story for those who might be going through the same thing to to be empathetic with them to to show them that that they can and 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 they are worthy. So I just want to take a moment, an opportunity to help others who who aren't necessarily leading people with this, but they're struggling with this. What would you say to them, Paul? You know, I tell the story about, let's say that you're out driving and you get pulled over and the police officer comes up and says, you're under arrest or whatever. And you're innocent and you know you're innocent. You're telling the police officer that you're innocent. They want to know part of it. They 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 have it in their mind that that you are under arrest. And I tell the story as a, who has a son who is a sheriff's deputy. So my son walks up and he arrests you and takes you to jail and you're in this cell and you get one phone call. Who's that call going to be to? No matter how embarrassed that you are, no matter how upset you are about the situation, who is that person that you're going to call? You're going to call somebody, right? You're not going to just sit there in jail. You're going to call somebody to help get you out. Who is that person? And when I talk to, when I go out and talk to people, I ask them, who is that person? That is the person that you would reach out to if you're struggling because they're going to love you unconditionally. They're not going to judge you and they're going to do everything they can to help you. Just as if you were sitting in a jail cell, they're going to love you unconditionally and they're going to support you and help you in any way they possibly can. So if you're struggling, if you're walking in those shadows and you're afraid to say anything to anybody or get professional help, there has to be that one person in your life that you know loves you unconditionally and will never judge you to just start having the conversation. And it can be as simple as I've just lately, I've been having this, these feelings of despair. And I don't know where they're coming from. And life is good. My job is good. My family is good. They're, they're just there. And having that person that you can just open up to and have that conversation with to begin that step of addressing a mental illness or a mental health issue, that is going to do so much for you to be able to have that discussion. So I know so many people go through life and like, I don't know who I want to talk to. I don't want to tell my wife. I don't want to tell my husband. But I'm telling you, if you sit back and think about who is that one person that will love you unconditionally, no matter what, and will not judge you for any reason, 
that is the person you need to begin your discussion with. And whether that discussion leads to a mental health professional, whether that discussion just they needed to get it off of their chest and you, you make a promise that you, you'll continue to have these conversations, at least start the conversation. Uh, that is the biggest step that you can make and make that conversation with someone that you love and trust. Paul, I am so thankful that you're here to to share these stories, to to share this advice, to to reach out to those and 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 be vulnerable with this. And even though our time on the podcast is is coming to an end, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today on this. But I want to give you an opportunity to talk about your book. Where can folks find a walk with the light in the shadows? Where, where's that available for folks to pick up so they can hear more of your stories and and, and learn more about you? Yeah, it's available on Amazon. So if you search under A Walk with the Light in the Shadows, it's available both Kindle version and paperback version. The whole object of this book was not to make money. It, you know, I've come to the conclusion it's expensive to be an author. And unless you're Tom Clancy, you're not going to make money being an author. My whole object, my whole object and what I want to do with this book is get it into the hands of the people that need to read it. If one person takes this book and reads it and starts that conversation with that person that they trust, then this book has been worth it. The blood, sweat, and tears and the vulnerability and trust me for the longest time. It sat for two and a half years before I decided to publish it because I didn't want people to know my story. So if you go out to Amazon and you buy it there, you can get it there. If you all, all um, supply Bo with my actual, my home address, I'll send him an email with my home address. If you don't want to buy it through Amazon, you have Bo uh, either email me and, and, and I'll send it out to you free of charge. If you're struggling and, and you feel like this book may help, um, and I do want you to understand that it is, there's some Christian perspective in there as well about my walk with daily walk with God. But if you want to copy this book and you don't want to go to Amazon and you don't want to buy it, I will send it to you free of charge. You just let Bo know and Bo will get a hold of me and I will make sure to get a book in your Of course. And you can find me on LinkedIn or, or Twitter. And, and I'll make sure that once this uh, episode posts, if you're listening to it, it is live. I'll make sure that on the Accidental Leader uh, LinkedIn page that, uh, Paul, we tag you in there so folks can connect with you directly as well. Yes, absolutely. Paul, thank you so much for being with us on episode seven. It's in the books. Be sure to check out episode eight. When it posts in about two weeks, we're going to be featuring James McBride, another credit unit executive, a CEO, who was told he can't. He would never walk. He would never talk. He would never be normal. He would never live alone. And my, oh my, look what James has done to show those people that he could. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Accidental Leader podcast. I'm your host and fellow Accidental Leader, Bo McDonald. For more information, listen to past episodes or sign up for updates and, and emails, visit theaccidentalleader.com. For more resources and to listen to past Accidental Leader podcast episodes, visit theaccidentalleader.com. Courtesy of our sponsors, your marketing company and Uncommon.